Sisters, how wonderful it is to be with you tonight. You are such good women. You are faithful, righteous daughters of God, striving to do the best you can to keep the covenants you have made with our Heavenly Father. I hope that each of you has had an opportunity to see the poster we chose to represent our theme, Here Am I, Send Me. This painting, entitled Pioneers Arriving, was done by Sister Minerva Teichert, a mother, wife, and honored artist. We love this painting. We love the look on the woman's face as she walks with her family beside her, and we especially love her bag. Although we will never know what's in that bag, <laughs> it reminds me of other bags I see at church. I've carried them, and I'm sure you have too. Mine have carried at various times scriptures, lesson materials, bottles, quiet books, paper, and crayons. Sisters, just as we carry our bags with us at church, so do we metaphorically need to carry another bag with us wherever we go. And in this bag is our treasure of covenants, because we are covenant women. I want to visit with you about the way our covenants can strengthen righteous families. It's important for us to realize that there's no one way that a righteous family looks. Some righteous families have two parents, but sometimes through death or divorce there is only one. Some righteous families have many children, and other families, at least for the moment, have none. Most members are single for part of their lives, but Elder Marvin J. Ashton taught us that God and one are a family. In some righteous families, only the father works outside of the home, and other times, both adults must work. So though we may differ, what righteous families have in common are the covenants that they hold sacred. I think first of covenants relating to the laws of the gospel—tithing, church attendance, and the word of wisdom, for example. Now, sisters, I don't need to tell you that if we keep these covenants, our families will be blessed. That's not to say we'll never suffer, but in the end, we know that there is a reward for keeping our promises. Other covenants commit us to moral behaviors, both our ethics toward one another and standards of conduct related to our bodies. We need to teach our children ethical behaviors, honesty, respect, integrity, kindness in word and actions. We send our children into a world where these behaviors are declining, but we must teach them through word and, more importantly, example, the actions of decency and goodness. And what of the standard of conduct relative to our bodies? Sisters, we need to be examples to our children of what we expect in dress, in appearance, and in chastity. Two years ago, President Hinckley stood in this meeting and counseled us to teach our children when they are very young and small and never quit. The standard for all of us is clear, but what we know is that the world's ways are too often, often becoming our ways and our children's ways. 
I once heard a mother say that with all of the evil influences facing her daughters, she had to choose which battles to fight, and so she had chosen not to fight their dress standards. But modesty is a battle worth fighting because it so often affects more serious moral issues. Now, this doesn't mean that we have to demand that our daughters and sons are covered from neck to ankle, but it does mean that we help them dress in a way that shows that they are children of God. Sisters, you are wise and amazing mothers. You don't need a handbook outlining what's acceptable in dress. Follow the Spirit, and you and your children will know what is right. We also need to make sure that our children understand the Lord's expectations regarding sexual behavior. The standard relative to chastity has never changed. Children should know where the line is. However, too often we are seeing our children justifying behaviors they know are incorrect and modeling the behaviors of the world. We need to set aside any embarrassment or discomfort we may feel so that we can have frank discussions with our teenagers. They need to know specifically, not generally, what behaviors are acceptable for a man and a woman outside of marriage. If we don't teach them the standards, then the world will, with disastrous results. The same holds true for the newest threat—technology. Sadly, the best filters made will not ensure that nothing profane will enter our homes. While the Internet is wonderful, we must be vigilant regarding it and other media influences in the home. Pornography is becoming all too prevalent and is seeping into the lives of saints, turning their hearts away from the standards of God. The most important covenant pertaining to families is the covenant of eternal marriage. We know that marriage between a man and a woman is ordained of God, and that family is central to the Creator's plan for the eternal destiny of His children. Our families are our highest responsibility as well as our greatest blessing. The theme of this conference is, Here am I, send me. The words are a promise to the Lord and an expression of our willingness to serve. If we keep our covenants, the promises we receive in return are great. President Boyd K. Packer has written, It's not uncommon for responsible parents to lose one of their children for a time to influences over which they have no control. They agonize over rebellious sons or daughters. They are puzzled over why they are so helpless when they have tried so hard to do what they should. It is my conviction that those wicked influences will one day be overruled. We cannot overemphasize the value of a temple marriage, the binding ties of the sealing ordinance, and the standards of worthiness required of them. When parents keep the covenants they have made at the altar of the temple, their children will be forever bound to them. Sisters, that promise gives me so much hope. Let's make our trek with confidence, our bright bags clutched firmly in our arms. But let's empty those bags of things we do not need. Extra weight will only slow us down. Let's rid ourselves of the what-ifs and the if-onlys and cast our burden on the Lord. 
I need to do this with you. Let's just do the very best we can every day and allow the Lord to make up the difference for us. That is one of the promises He has made to us. Finally, let me tell you about a woman I have never met, but whom I love dearly because she was true to her covenants. My great-great-grandmother, Charlotte Gailey Clark, was one of the last 295 people to receive her covenants in the Nauvoo Temple prior to the beginning of the Great Exodus West. The temple had been closed since the Saints were being forced to leave, but all those who were worthy had not yet had an opportunity to receive their endowment. My great-great-grandmother and her husband would be leading their family west, and she wanted her covenants with her before she set out on that journey. I have thought about her so often these past few months. I someday want to say to her, Grandma, thank you for keeping your covenants. I am so blessed to be your granddaughter. Your faithfulness has blessed me and my family and will continue to bless all of us throughout all the generations. And sisters, our children and grandchildren will one day be able to say the same to us and of us. They will thank us one day for keeping this bag of covenants with us and using them to bless the lives of our families. May our Heavenly Father bless us to keep our covenants, that our families may be strengthened and blessed because of our righteous lives. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Our fifth article of faith states, We believe that man must be called of God by prophecy and by the laying on of hands by those who are in authority to preach the gospel and administer in the ordinances thereof. One of our most important priesthood callings, one that requires our constant attention, is in our families and our homes. Brethren, as fathers and patriarchs of our families, we are, by design, divine design, to preside over our families in love and righteousness, and are to provide the necessities of life and protect and protection for our families. Husbands and wives have a solemn responsibility to love and care for each other and for their children. Parents have a sacred duty to rear their children in love and righteousness, to provide for their physical and spiritual needs, to teach them to love and serve one another, to observe the commandments of God, and to be law-abiding citizens wherever they live. Husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, will be held accountable before God for the discharge of these obligations. We live in a world that is crying for righteous leadership based on trustworthy principles. In our Church, we have been taught in our own unique way correct principles of leadership directed by priesthood authority. I believe few of us realize the potential of the priesthood and the blessing it is. The more we learn about holding the priesthood and understand its operation, 
the more we appreciate the blessings the Lord has given to us. John Taylor once declared, I shall briefly answer what the priesthood is. It is the government of God, whether on the earth or in the heavens, for it is by that power, agency, or principle that all things are upheld and governed on the earth and in the heavens, and it is by that power that all things are upheld and sustained. It governs all things. It directs all things. It sustains all things and has to do with all things that God and truth are associated with. It is the power God delegated to intelligences in the heaven and to men on earth. When we arrive in this celestial kingdom of God, we shall find the most perfect order and harmony existing because there is perf a perfect pattern, the most perfect order of government carried out. And when and wherever these principles have been developed in the earth, in proportion as they have been spread and been acted upon, just in that proportion have they produced blessings and salvation to the human family. And when the government of God shall be extensively ad adopted, and when Jesus' prayer that he taught his disciples is answered, and God's kingdom comes on earth, and his will is done here as in heaven, then and not until then will universal love, peace, and harmony and union prevail. The Lord gave us a vision of what the priesthood can be as he directed his apostles who were to carry on the work following his death. He declared to them, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit, that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. One of the blessings received from the priesthood is having the opportunity of belonging to a quorum. A quorum of the priesthood consists of a specific group of men holding the same priesthood office, organized for a more effective advancement of the kingdom of God. Stephen L. Richards at one time gave us a threefold definition of a priesthood quorum. He said a priesthood quorum is three things. First, a class. Second, a fraternity. And third, a service unit. I was taught how a quorum works in these three aspects many years ago when I attended a high priest group meeting in a small community in southern Wyoming. The lesson that week was on justification and sanctification. It was evident as the lesson began that the teacher was well prepared to instruct his brother. Then a question prompted a response that changed the whole course of the lesson. In response to the question, one of the brethren commented, I have listened with great interest to the lesson material, and I thought, and the thought has crossed my mind that the information presented will soon be lost if we do not find application to put the material presented into practice in our daily lives. Then he went on to propose a course of action. The night before, a citizen of the community had passed away. His wife was a member of the Church, but he had not been. This high priest had visited the widow and offered his sympathy. 
Leaving the home after the visit, his eyes wandered over the beautiful farm of the deceased brother. He had put so much of his life and labor into building it up. The alfalfa was ready to cut. The grain would soon be ready to harvest. How would this poor sister cope with the sudden problems now falling on her? She would need time to get herself organized for her new responsibilities. Then he proposed that the group, that they apply the principles they had just been taught by working with the widow to keep her farm operating until the widow and her family could find a more permanent solution. The balance of the meeting was spent in organizing the project to assist her. As we left the classroom, there was a good feeling among the brethren. I heard one of them remark as he passed through the doorway, This project is just what we needed as a group to work together again. A lesson had been taught. A brotherhood had been strengthened. A service project had been organized to assist someone in need. Now these principles taught to us in the organization of a quorum apply not only to a quorum, but the same principles apply to the priesthood leadership in the home. We are under divine command to bring up our children in light and truth. If fathers do not raise their children in light and truth, then the Lord is displeased with them. This is His message. But verily I say unto you, my servants, you have continued under condemnation. You have not taught your children light and truth according to the commandments. And that wicked one hath power as yet over you, and this is the cause of your affliction. And now a commandment I give unto you. If you will be delivered, you shall set in order your own house, for there are many things that are not right in your house. The Church must retain its family-based orientation. We need to teach the concept of building successive generations of members who are married in the temple and faithful. We need to teach basic doctrine and understand the relationship between personal spiritual growth and that of the family. We need to make the outcome clear, inviting members to come unto Christ and endure to the end. Among the first instructions given to man and woman was, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. God, in His divine plan, ordained marriage to bring about His basic organizational unit, the family. One of the first principles He taught Adam and Eve was to develop a working relationship. The scripture states, And Adam and Eve, his wife, called upon the name of the Lord, and they heard the voice of the Lord from way toward the Garden of Eden, speaking unto them, and they saw him not, for they were shut out of his presence. And he gave unto them commandments that they should worship the Lord their God and should offer the firstlings of their flock as an offering unto the Lord. And Adam was obedient unto the commandments of the Lord. Then the Lord instructed the first earthly parents to teach their children about obedience to His laws. And Adam and Eve blessed the name of God, and they made all things known unto their sons and their daughters.
President Spencer W. Kimball has taught us about the eternal nature of the family. The formula is simple. The ingredients are few, there are there, but there are many amp amplifications of each. First, there must be a proper approach towards marriage, which contemplates a selection of a spouse, which reaches as nearly as possible the pinnacle of perfection in all that matters of importance to the individuals. Then those two parties must come to the altar of the temple, realizing they must work hard towards a successful joint living. Second, there must be great unselfishness, forgetting self and directing all the family life and all pertaining thereunto to the good of the family and subjugating self. Third, there must be continued courting and expression of affection, kindness, and consideration to keep love alive and growing. Fourth, there must be complete living of the commandments of the Lord as defined in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Home should be an anchor, a safe harbor, a place of refuge, a happy place for families to dwell together, a place where children are loved. In the home, parents should teach their children the great lessons of life. Home should be the one that centers on one's earthly experience where love and mutual respect are appropriately blended. Second only to the importance of being internal companions is being an earthly parent. Fathers and mothers need to consider their roles in this great responsibility. My children taught me a great lesson many years ago. Our family had moved from California to New York, where I had accepted a new position with a new company. We began the process of finding a new home by looking in communities closest to the city. Gradually, however, we moved further away from the city to find a home in a neighborhood that seemed to fit our needs. We found a beautiful home, some distance from New York City. It was a one-story house nestled in the lovely deep woods of Connecticut. And the final test before purchasing the home was for me to ride the commuter train into New York and check the time and see how long the commute would take. I made the trip and returned quite discouraged. The trip was one and one-half hours each way. I walked into our motel room where our family was waiting for me and presented to my children a choice. You can either have this house or a father. I said, much to my surprise, they responded, We'll take the house. You're never around much anyway. I was devastated. What my children was telling me was true. I needed to repent fast. My children needed a father more at home, being home with them more. Eventually, we reached a compromise and brought a home closer to the city with a much shorter commute. I changed my work habits which allowed me to have more time with my family. Throughout the ages, the Lord has commanded His people to teach their children in truth and righteousness. We encourage you to gather your families around you for family prayer, gospel study, for family work, for family activities. We urge you to counsel with your family members and encourage them to participate in important decisions 
like planning family activities. President Brigham Young taught, the priesthood is the perfect order and system of government, and this alone can deliver the human family from all the evils which now afflict its members and assure, assure them of happiness and felicity hereafter. We have been given great power of the priesthood. It blesses us individually and provides blessings for our family. It blesses the quorum to which we belong. It blesses the congregations in which we are called to serve. It even blesses the world in which we live. We need to learn how to righteously follow the doctrines and teachings the Lord has given to us as bearers of His holy priesthood. We are counseled. Wherefore, not let every, let every man learn his duty and act in the office in which he has been appointed in all diligence. And he that is slothful shall not be counted worthy to stand. And he that learns not his duty and shows himself not approved shall not be counted worthy to stand. May the Lord bless us as members of His Church that we may realize what a blessing it is to have the priesthood on earth and to be able to use it for the benefit of our families and for all mankind. May we grow to understand our relationship to God, our Eternal Father, and the priesthood He has given to us is my humble prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. My beloved brethren and sisters, we greet you again in a great worldwide conference of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Alma declared, Oh, that I were an angel and could have the wish of mine heart, that I might go forth and speak with the trump of God, with a voice to shake the earth, and cry repentance unto every people. We have reached a point where we can almost do that. The proceedings of this conference will be carried across the world, and the speakers will be heard and seen by Latter-day Saints on every continent. We have come a very long way in realizing the fulfillment of the vision set forth in the book of Revelation. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. What a tremendous occasion this is, my brothers and sisters. It is difficult to comprehend. We speak from this marvelous conference center. I know of no other building to compare with it. We are as one great family, representatives of the human family, in this vast and beautiful world. Many of you participated in the dedication of the Nauvoo Temple last June. It was a great and marvelous occasion, one to be long remembered. We not only dedicated a magnificent building, a house of the Lord, but we also dedicated a beautiful memorial to the Prophet Joseph Smith. In 1841, two years after he came to Nauvoo, he broke ground for a house of the Lord. 
that should stand as a crowning jewel to the work of God. It is difficult to believe that in those conditions and under those circumstances, a structure of such magnificence was designed to stand on what was then the frontier of America. I doubt, <clears throat> I seriously doubt, that there was another structure of such design and magnificence in all the state of Illinois. It was to be dedicated to the work of the Almighty to accomplish His eternal purposes. No effort was spared. No sacrifice was too great. Through the next five years, men chiseled stone and laid footings and foundation, walls and ornamentation. Hundreds went to the north, there to live for a time to cut lumber, vast quantities of it, and then bound it together to form rafts which were floated down the river to Nauvoo. Beautiful moldings were cut from that lumber. Pennies were gathered to buy nails. Unimaginable sacrifice was made to procure glass. They were building a temple to God, and it had to be the very best of which they were capable. In the midst of all of this activity, the Prophet and his brother Hiram were killed in Carthage on the 27th of June, 1844. None of us living today can comprehend what a disastrous blow that was to the saints. Their leader was gone, he, the man of visions and revelations. He was not only their leader, he was their prophet. Great was their sorrow, terrible their distress. But Brigham Young, president of the Quorum of the Twelve, picked up the reins. Joseph had placed his authority upon the shoulders of the apostles. Brigham determined to finish the temple, and the work went on. By day and by night they pursued their objective, notwithstanding all of the threats hurled against them by lawless mobs. In 1845 they knew they could not stay in the city they had built from the swamplands of the river. They knew they must leave. It became a time of feverish activity, first to complete the temple and secondly to build wagons and gather supplies to move into the wilderness of the West. Ordnance work was begun before the temple was entirely completed. It went on feverishly until in the cold of the winter of 1846, the people began to close the doors of their homes, and wagons moved slowly down Parley Street to the water's edge, then across the river and up the banks on the Iowa side. Movement continued. The river froze over. It was so bitter cold. But that made it possible for them to move on the ice. <clears throat> Back to the east they looked for the last time to the city of their dreams and the temple of their God. Then they looked to the west to a destiny they did not know. The temple was subsequently dedicated, and those who dedicated it said amen and moved on. The building was later burned by an arsonist who almost lost his life in the evil process.
a tornado finally toppled most of what was left. The house of the Lord, the great objective of their labors, was gone. Nauvoo became almost a ghost city. It faded until it almost died. The side of the temple was plowed and planted. The years passed, and there slowly followed an awakening. Our people, descendants of those who once lived there, had stirred within them the memories of their forebears with a desire to honor those who had paid so terrible a price. Gradually, the city came alive again, and there was a restoration of parts of Nauvoo. Under the prompting of the Spirit and motivated by the desires of my father, who had served as mission president in that area and who wished to rebuild the temple for the centennial of Nauvoo but was never able to do so, we announced in the April Conference of 1999 that we would rebuild that historic edifice. Excitement filled the air. Men and women came forth with a desire to be helpful. Large contributions of money and skills were offered. Again, no expense was spared. We were to rebuild the house of the Lord as a memorial to the Prophet Joseph and as an offering to our God. On the recent 27th of June, in the afternoon, at about the same time, Joseph and Hiram were shot in Carthage 158 years earlier. We held a dedication of the magnificent new structure. It is a place of great beauty. It stands on exactly the same site where the original temple stood. Its outside dimensions are those of the original. It is a fitting and appropriate memorial to the great prophet of this dispensation, Joseph the Seer. How grateful I am, how profoundly grateful for what has happened. Today, facing west on the high bluff overlooking the city of Nauvoo, thence across the Mississippi and over the plains of Iowa, there stands Joseph's temple, a magnificent house of God. Here in the Salt Lake Valley, facing east to that beautiful temple in Nauvoo, stands Brigham's temple, the Salt Lake Temple. They look toward one another as bookends between which there are volumes that speak of the suffering, the sorrow, the sacrifice, even the deaths of thousands who made the long journey from the Mississippi River to the valley of the Great Salt Lake. Nauvoo became the 113th working temple. We've since dedicated another in the Hague, Netherlands, making 114 in all. These wonderful buildings of various sizes and architectural designs are now scattered through the nations of the earth. They have been constructed to accommodate our people in carrying forward the work of the Almighty, whose design it is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man.
These temples have been constructed to be used. We honor our Father as we make use of them. At the opening of this conference, I urge you, my brethren and sisters, to utilize the temples of the Church. Go there and carry forward the great and marvelous work which the God of Heaven has outlined for us. There let us learn of His ways and His plans. There let us make covenants that will lead us in paths of righteousness, unselfishness, and truth. There let us be joined as families under an eternal covenant administered under the authority of the priesthood of God. And there may we extend these same blessings to those of previous generations, even our own forebears, who await the service which we can now give. May the blessings of heaven rest upon you, my beloved brethren and sisters. May the spirit of Elijah touch your hearts and prompt you to do that work for others who cannot move forward unless you do so. May we rejoice in the glorious privilege that is ours. I humbly pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. My beloved sisters, your presence is overwhelming, and I am humbled by it. We gratefully acknowledge the presence of President Hinckley and President Monson. The choir's music has lifted us greatly. Sister Sine's prayer was an invitation for the divine to be with us. The inspired messages of Sister Bonnie Parkin, Sister Kathleen Hughes, and Sister Ann Pingree have been exceptional. President Hinckley, President Monson, and I participated in the setting apart and blessing of these three sisters as the general presidency of the Relief Society. Their inspired charge is to lead this great organization of sisters under the direction of the priesthood. The blessings pronounced upon these three sisters collectively and individually were profound. As President Hinckley set apart Sister Parkin, he reminded the sisters, the Prophet Joseph outlined the work of the Relief Society to reach out, to minister to the needs of the poor, the needy, the troubled, and distressed, and to bless women. Our theme tonight is, Lord, here am I, send me. This profoundly simple statement is so appropriate as I address you sisters this evening, because so very many of you demonstrate so well this willingness to step forward and serve. You are all heaven-sent. You are the beautiful adornment of the human race. Your role as sisters is special and unique in the Lord's work. You are the nurturers and the caregivers who have, as the Prophet Joseph Smith said, feelings of charity and benevolence. I do not have words to express my respect, appreciation, and admiration for you wonderful sisters. The women of all ages in this Church have been endowed 
with a divine, uniquely feminine gift of grace. We are humbled by your acts of faith, devotion, obedience, and loving service, your examples of righteousness. This Church could not have achieved its destiny without the dedicated, faithful women who, in their righteousness, have immeasurably strengthened the Church. Over the years, the Sisters of the Church have been faced with challenges as great as yours are today. Your challenges are different from those of your mother, grandmother, and great-grandmothers, but they are very real. I rejoice that the opportunities for women in the Church and in the world are increasing. We hope that you will enhance these expanding opportunities by bringing to them your sublime feminine touch. These opportunities are really without limit. When the Prophet Joseph established this organization, he turned the key for the emancipation of womankind, and it was turned for all the world. Since that key was turned in 1842, more knowledge has come to the earth and to women than has come in all of the history of the world. Over the years, this great society for women has evolved under inspiration, but the basic work of Relief Society has not changed. The Prophet Joseph stated it very succinctly that your work is not only to relieve the poor, but save souls. I believe the four great enduring concepts of this society are, first, a divinely established sisterhood, second, it is a place of learning. Third, it is an organization whose basic charter is to serve others. Its motto is, Charity Never Faileth. Fourth, it is a place where women can socialize and establish eternal relationships. I am pleased that you younger sisters have the opportunity of participating in Relief Society at age 18. You will benefit greatly from your membership in this vital organization. Your lives will be blessed as you willingly participate with the Sisters in compassionate service and in caregiving. The Relief Society curriculum is focused on basic doctrine and will give you the opportunity to study the gospel and increase your spirituality. The curriculum is relevant for all mankind, not just wives and mothers. All sisters, including you younger sisters, need to be remembered and nourished by the good word of God. Doctrine will strengthen you and help you to develop the spirituality necessary to overcome the challenges of life. A young lady who is very close to me made the following observation. I am 18 and the youngest member of Relief Society in our ward. I enjoy going to Relief Society with my mother and grandmother because it's so nice to spend time with them as friends. I like to listen to my mom talk to her friends because it gives me an opportunity to get to know the sisters who are her age. There are several ladies who like to give me a hug and ask me where I'm working and what I'm doing during the summer. 
They always make me feel like I am important and special to them. As I have associated with the grandmothers and great-grandmothers in my ward, I have developed a new and unique relationship which have enriched and blessed my life. I also like the lessons the older sisters give. They have lived in different locations, and their individual experiences have given me better insight on how to handle life's challenges and problems. The stories they share from their own lives are interesting and help me relate to the lesson. I have come to realize that Relief Society truly is for all women, regardless of ages. No matter what circumstances you sisters experience, your influence can be marvelously far-reaching. I believe some of you have a tendency to underestimate your profound capacity for the blessing of the lives of others. More often than not, it is not on the stage with some public pronouncement, but it, in your example of righteousness and countless gentle acts of love and kindness done so willingly and so often on a one-to-one -one basis. The Lord's special concern for widows is abundantly evidenced in the scriptures. Of course, this concern also extends to all single mothers. They have so many demands placed upon them. They must provide the food and the clothing and the other necessities for the family. They also need to nurture their children with an extra amount of love and caring. I recently really received a letter from the son of a sister in this circumstance, and I quote a paragraph from it. Mom was able to be a full-time homemaker while our family was young. This was where she wanted to be. But some 28 years ago, with four children, ages five to four, she was forced to take on employment outside the home. And in order to provide for us as a suddenly single parent, while we know this is not the ideal situation for raising a family, Mom worked diligently to continue nurturing us in the gospel and tending to all family duties while working full-time to support us financially. <laughs> Only now as a parent myself, blessed to have a wife at home to care for our children, have I begun to understand the scope of Mom's situation and the trials in caring for us at that time. It was difficult and trying and I wish that I had done more things to make it easier for her. I will be eternally grateful for her sacrifice in setting an example by teaching us how to work and how we should live. The wisdom of the proclamation on the family rings especially true to me now because of the experiences we shared as a family. Many faithful righteous sisters have not had the opportunity for marriage, and yet they have always been a vital and necessary part of the sacred work. These wonderful women have a distinct errand of influence as angels of mercy to parents, sisters, brothers and sisters, and nephews as well as family members and friends. In the Church there are endless opportunities to love and nurture. The single sisters who 
may have more time served so superbly well. Sister Margaret Anderson of Centerville, Utah, is a wonderful example of a single sister who has lived an exemplary and fulfilling life in the service of others. For many years she lovingly cared for her aged mother, her aunt, and her disabled sister. She guided and influenced hundreds of children as an elementary school teacher. Now retired, she continues to volunteer each week, helping children to learn to read. Her acts of service have been a special blessing to the members of her ward. One young lady commented, When I was little, Margaret would make me a birthday cake every year. She would decorate the frosting with the activities that I had done the previous year, such as dancing or playing soccer. Not one missionary leaves from her ward without one of Margaret's leatherwork wallets. She is a valuable resource as a gospel scholar, particularly in Relief Society. For her neighbors and friends, she has willingly run errands, driven them to the temple. Margaret is a gracious hostess. She makes delicious candies and paints beautiful pictures, which she enjoys sharing with others. She truly has blessed the lives of countless individuals. The the prophets of the Lord have repeatedly promised that no blessing will be denied to the righteous single sisters of the Church if, through their fault, no fault of their own, they have not been married in this life and sealed to a worthy priesthood holder. They will be able to enjoy that blessing forever in the next world. On occasions when you wake for that acceptance and affection which belong to family life on earth, please know that our Father in Heaven is aware of your anguish and that one day He will bless you beyond your capacity to express. Following the dedication of the magnificent new temple in Nauvoo, we rode home on the airplane with Sister Park and Sister Hughes and Sister Pingree and their noble husbands. I asked the sisters if they had gone to the red brick store in Nauvoo, where the Prophet Joseph established the Relief Society on March 17, 1842, with only 20 members present. Sister Parkin responded that indeed they had. As I was speaking to them, I was forcefully reminded that all the sisters anywhere in the world can inherit and benefit from the blessings of the Lord for women. The Prophet Joseph Smith said, I now turn the key to you in the name of God. Knowledge and intelligence shall flow down from this time. The blessing and knowledge and intelligence comes to all righteous women in the Church, regardless of their race or nationality, and irrespective of whether they are new in the Church or descendant of one of the first twenty members in Nauvoo in 1842. These blessings flow to those sisters who willingly perform the work of angels. I recently heard Elder Dieter Rochdorf make the following insightful statement. None of my family lines come through Nauvoo. I cannot trace my lineage to the pioneers. 
But like the majority of Church members around the world, I can deeply connect with all my heart to the Saints of Nauvoo and their journey to Zion. The continuing effort of blazing my own religious trail to a Zion of the pure in heart makes me feel close to the 19th century pioneers. They are my spiritual ancestry, as they are for each and every member of the Church, regardless of nationality, language, or culture. They have established not only a safe place in the West, but also the spiritual foundation for the building of the Kingdom of God in all nations of the world. Now a word to you sisters who are married. In a very substantial way, you sisters make our homes a refuge of peace and happiness in a troubled world. A righteous husband is the bearer of the priesthood, which priesthood is the governing authority of the home. But he is not the priesthood. He is the holder of the priesthood. His wife shares in the blessings of the priesthood with him. He is not elevated in any way above the divine status of women. President Gordon B. Hinckley in last April's priesthood meeting stated, In the marriage companionship there is neither inferiority nor superiority. The woman does not walk ahead of the man, neither does the man walk ahead of the woman. They walk side by side as a son and daughter of God in an eternal journey. He went on to say, I am confident that when we stand before the bar of God, there will be little mention of how much wealth we have accumulated in life or of any honors which we may have achieved. But there will be searching questions concerning our domestic relationships. And I am convinced that only those who have walked through life with love and respect and appreciation for their companions and children will receive from our eternal judge the words, Well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. The wives who sustain their husbands in bishoprics, stake presidency, and other priesthood callings are a great blessing to the Church. They serve behind the scenes quietly, but effectively supporting the family and home while their husbands are ministering to the saints. I said quietly. I've heard it said that some women like a strong, silent man. They think he's listening. No one knows more than I what strength a supportive wife can be. Since our marriage, my Ruth has sustained and encouraged me in my many college I have had for almost 60 years. I could not have served one day without her loving support. I am most grateful to her and love her deeply. The widow of one of my missionary associates, Sister Effie Dean, Bowman Ridge is very busy with her family and two businesses. In addition, she is a mother 
grandmother and great-grandmother of a large family. Some time ago, she was struggling to meet the demands of these multiple roles. She said, what I need is a wife. <laughs> of course, what she meant was that she felt the need for support from someone who would take care of the countless details a righteous, caring wife handled so well. Sisters, whatever your circumstances, you all need to have oil in your lamps. This means being prepared. We all remember the parable of the ten virgins who were invited to the wedding supper. Five were wise and prepared with oil in their lamps to meet the bridegroom, and the other five were not. All ten trimmed their lamps, but five had not taken enough oil with them and had to run, had run out. We all need the light of our lamps as we go through the darkness. We all want to meet the bridegroom and attend the wedding feast. A few years ago, President Spencer W. Kimball clarified this tragedy of unpreparedness. He said the five foolish virgins in the parable had been taught. They had been warned all their lives. But during the day, both the wise and the foolish seemed alike. But at the darkest hour, when least expected, the bridegroom came. The five of whose lamps had gone out rushed out to get the needed oil, but by the time they reached the banqueting hall, the door was shut. It was too late, President Kimball explained. The foolish asked the others to share their oil, but the spiritual preparedness cannot be shared in an instant. The wise had to go else the bridegroom would have gone unwelcomed. They all needed their oil for themselves. They could not save the foolish. In his, this parable, he continued, Oil cannot be, can be purchased at the market. In our lives, the oil of preparedness is accumulated drop by drop in righteous living. Attendance at sacrament meeting adds oil to our lamps, drop by drop. Over the years, fasting, family prayer, home teaching, control of bodily appetites, preaching the gospel, studying the scriptures, each act of dedication and obedience is a drop added to our store. Deeds of kindness, payment of offerings and tithes, chaste thoughts and actions, marriage and the covenant for eternity, these contribute importantly to the oil which we can at midnight re <coughs> refuel our exhausted lamps. Sisters, it is important that you have oil in your lamps so that when you say to the Lord, Here am I, send me, you are prepared and qualified to be sent. We are all heaven sent, but what we are able to accomplish in the Lord's work depends to a large extent on our willingness and ability. My testimony, based upon 59 years of married life, is that my wife's participation in Relief Society has brought enriched spirituality and harmony to our home. This divinely inspired organization has not only blessed her life, but also the lives of each of our family members. Involvement in Relief Society can help you replenish the oil of your lamps. 
It can provide you much of the stability and stamina you will need as you weather the storms of life throughout mortality. When the first press conference was held after President Hinckley was ordained and set apart as president of the Church, one woman asked the president to comment upon the challenge of mothers who have to work and balance the many needs in their homes and families. President Hinckley replied, Do the best you can, and remember that the greatest asset you have in this world is those children you have brought into the world and for whose nurture and care you are responsible. I repeat that tonight. Do the best you can to help all of us reach higher and do better. Use your innate spiritual gifts to bless. Help us push back the pernicious influences of the world in our lives, our homes, and in the Church. May the promise of Nephi be fulfilled in your behalf. And they were armed with righteousness and with the power of God in great glory. Of this I bear testimony of the blessings that have come into my life from the love of my wife Ruth, my Christ-like mother, saintly grandmothers and daughters and granddaughters, and many other righteous women. I do so in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Some years ago, my husband and I visited the eastern sector of Berlin, Germany. Chunks of what was once the infamous wall dividing the citizens of that city were lying about preserved as a memorial to the triumph of freedom over bondage. Written on one piece of the wall, in bold, uneven red letters, were these words, Many small people in many small places doing many small things can alter the face of the earth. To me, that phrase speaks of what each of us as covenant women can do to make a difference as we step forward offering our hearts and hands to the Lord by lifting and loving others. It matters not whether we are new converts or lifelong members, single, married, divorced, or widowed, whether we are rich, poor, educated, or uneducated, living in a modern city or in the most remote jungle village. We, as covenant women, have consecrated ourselves to the cause of Christ through our baptismal and temple covenants. We can alter the face of the earth, one family and one home at a time, through charity, our small and simple acts of pure love. Charity, the Savior's pure love, is the highest, noblest, strongest kind of love for which we pray unto the Father with all the energy of heart to possess. Elder Dallin H. Oaks teaches us that charity is not an act, but a condition or state of being one becomes. Our day-to-day offerings of charity are written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God in the fleshy tables of our hearts. Little by little, our charitable acts change our natures 
define our characters, and ultimately make us women with the courage and commitment to say to the Lord, Here am I, send me. As our exemplar, the Savior showed us what charity means through His own actions. Besides ministering to multitudes, Jesus demonstrated the depth of His love and care for His family. Even while suffering terrible agony on the cross, He thought of His mother and her needs. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus His mother. When Jesus therefore saw His mother and the disciples standing by whom He loved, He saith unto His mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her unto his own home. I find it touching that this scripture shows the depth of John's devotion to Mary by saying that he took her unto his own home. I believe the most important acts of charity are small and simple in nature, eternal in consequence, and are rendered within the walls of our own homes. As we try to deal patiently and lovingly every day with fussy babies, challenging teenagers, difficult roommates, less active spouses, or elderly disabled parents, we may ask ourselves, is what I'm doing really important? Does it matter or make a difference? Dear sisters, what you are doing with your family matters. It matters so very, very much. Daily, each of us learns and relearns at home that charity, the Savior's pure love, never faileth. So many Relief Societies do great good serving in their families. These faithful women do not receive the praise of the world, nor do they seek it, but of some have compassion, making a difference. Who are these women who make a difference? In Nauvoo, our early Relief Society sisters, in the midst of grinding poverty, opened their hearts and welcomed into their homes many new converts streaming into the city. They shared their food, their clothing, and more importantly, they shared their faith in the redeeming love of the Savior. In our times, Sister Nell is a covenant woman who makes a difference. She is a widow in her 80s with a 47-year-old son, mentally and physically disabled from birth. A few years ago, this dear sister set out to do what seemed impossible to everyone else—to teach her son Keith to read. Learning to read was his greatest desire, but doctors had said Keith was incapable of reading. With faith in her heart and a desire to bless her son's life, this humble widow said to her son, I know Heavenly Father will bless you so you can read the Book of Mormon. Sister Nell wrote the following, It was hard work for Keith, and it wasn't easy for me either. At first there were some bad days because I got upset. 
It has been a time-consuming, word-by-word struggle. I sit by his side each morning. I point to each word with a pencil to help him stay on track. After seven long years and one month, Keith finally finished reading the Book of Mormon. His mother said, Hearing him read a verse without help is a thrill I just cannot put into words. She testifies, I know miracles do happen when we put our trust in the Lord. Throughout the world, in Africa, Asia, the Pacific, North and South America, and Europe, charitable women united with their families also make a difference in their communities. On the tiny island of Trinidad, Sister Ramatar, a Busy Branch Relief Society president, and her family are helping neighborhood children. The Ramatars live in a village that is a drug-infested place where many parents and adults are addicted to alcohol or are trafficking in drugs. The children are at risk and are often without supervision. Many do not attend school. Every Thursday night, as many as 30 children ages 3 to 19 years sit in the outside covered area of the Ramatar home, eagerly participating in a group known as Our One Big Happy Family. Prayers, hymns, fun songs, and the sharing of good deeds done by the children each week are part of the activities. Sometimes doctors, policemen, teachers, or our own missionaries share useful lessons such as President Gordon B. Hinckley's Six Bs. The Ramatar family rescues children through their small and simple acts of charity. As they have shared the gospel in their one big happy family, others have joined the Church. Beloved Relief Society sisters, I know that wherever we live, in whatever circumstances we find ourselves, we as covenant women, united in righteousness, can alter the face of the earth. I testify, as did Alma, that by small and simple things are great things brought to pass. In our homes, those small and simple things are daily acts of charity. Proclaim our conviction, Here am I, send me. I leave my witness that the greatest act of charity in time and all eternity was the Atonement of Jesus Christ. He willingly laid down His life to atone for my sins and yours. I express my devotion to His cause and my desire to serve Him always, wherever He calls me. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.